I'm John Perry. I'm Ted Cupper. And this is Constellation, making the graphic novel. Join us as we build an original science fiction world. Okay, welcome back, everyone, to the Constellation podcast. How are you doing, John? I'm I'm still good. Good. Even though I probably last said that, what, a year yeah, and a half sorry ago? Yeah, sorry it has been so long. Ago. I think it's been even longer for us than it has been for you listening, because we took so long releasing the last batch of episodes. But anyway, uh, if you've been listening up till now, you know that we finished our first draft of our script, and... In the time since we last talked to you, John and I have been going over that draft and making uh, plans for changes. Because, of course, as soon as you finish a draft, you just start on another one. Um, So what we're going to share with you today is uh, some of the top line conclusions that we came to as we've spent some time offline uh, making basically a brand new outline that is a document that we're going to use to to guide the next draft yeah we thought about going through this outline point by point but i think uh it's just going to be more expedient for us to like give you the the big changes here so that's what we're going to do so uh a cup first of all like we have a couple changes that sort of affect the like technology and like rules of the world and just how we're going to present things so um one of those is uh i guess it's not really a technology thing but the the way we're going to use voiceover the voiceover is like a big presentation decision that we made exactly so this affects like almost every scene in some fashion and and we introduced the voiceover pretty late in the script and it was just so useful it's like i mean we have such a complicated uh script to tell and uh that i think we're just going to basically use voiceover throughout and just try not to do a bad job with it because you know it is possible to do voiceover badly as we know well but uh it's going to be a really useful device i think for our particular needs yeah we had yeah we had been moving forward with the idea that we were going to go back and and use uh yeah we're calling it voiceover but it's basically like first person narration in in caption boxes right. you know we're still i'm still stuck um, on a uh, film language we I, have well, it's used like voiceover yeah. in, a, in a movie so yeah i think that's the right way to think about it um and similar to voiceover in the movie we want to make sure that it's being used to add a layer of meaning to things and not just uh describe what we're looking at but um we think it's going to be really useful and we are going to use it both for tim and for zoya so when the story switches perspective which everybody listening knows about um the, the voiceover will switch perspective as well. So we're going to, that's one big change that we're going to be basically making. Yeah. In every scene, trying to figure out what would the voiceover do here? Could the scene be faster or more efficient with the voiceover, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, that's like the big advantage, right? Is that like we can move through parts of the story way faster with voiceover helping us uh, and keep our page count from getting too, too out of control. Um, and we did make some, like, there are some sub decisions to make other than just having voiceover or not having it. So like we decided, for example, that Tim's voiceover that you start the story with is going to be, you know, in the moment thought sort of present tense, right? Which is like a different vibe than, you know, a lot of voiceover that you see in, you know, movies or comics, right? Is this sort of past tense narration that's like a character in the future looking back on their actions from with some perspective, um, you know, maybe, you know, that I think could potentially work for us too, but I, for, you know, we decided that for now, what we're going to go with is a more like in the moment, like, here's what I'm thinking in this scene. 
I'm talking to someone, I'm saying one thing, but I'm thinking another kind of voice voiceover. Right. So that's a limitation that we'll use to hopefully, you know, focus the voiceover and not have it tell too much. Um, yeah. And we made a couple of other decisions about global stuff. So let's talk about those. We made a big decision about how we're going to show lobbies, right? So if you remember in the first draft, we kind of allowed people to design their lobbies however they wanted. They were as flexible as the world's. But we decided that that was maybe just confusing <laughs> and we needed something maybe a little bit cleaner. And we thought, well, what if it was just that lobbies were all more or less the same, just a big white void. Uh, but the one element they had that was customizable and that sort of differentiated one world's lobby from the next would be um, a door. And the door could be, you know, it could look however and you could interact with it uh, by talking the way you do with the exec. Um and once you go through the door, you've, you know, you've signed the contract, you've agreed to the terms, you're entering the world. That's sort of the, uh, the decision we made. And that's going to have some downstream effects, mostly presentational aesthetic type effects, but there are a few story effects as well of, uh, of doing it that way. And I mean, the contract, the entrance contracts is really the key here because you, you know, our characters need a place like every time you enter a world, you have to negotiate the terms of the contract that you're going to enter that world under, you know, like what kind of rules are you going to be following? Right. And like that negotiation has to happen somewhere. But in, in a way, I think what we've come up with makes more sense than what we originally had, right? It makes sense that like that has to happen in some sort of like default area that's kind of a void because you haven't agreed to anything yet, right? So like right. they can't be subjecting you to like tons of crazy custom stuff in the lobby because, you know, it's by definition a thing that you haven't actually agreed to yet. So um, it's basically, you know, a default space that whatever, you know, beings created the constellation set up for this purpose. And yeah, aesthetically, the doors, I think, are going to be a fun thing to play with because, you know, we can research different kinds of styles of doors and like, you know, you know make that like a cool sort of theme of the book even, right? Because this idea of like the, you know, many doors to many places, many worlds also kind of captures the vibe of the of the universe that we've created, right? Where there's yeah. like all these different places you can go. Kind of calls um, to my mind like the the forest of doors that opens Nightmare Before Christmas or... Cool image, uh, yeah. You know, something like that. Like there's like, yeah, there's like a kind of a family of images that are like... a a group of doors that kind of give you a, a sense of possibility. And it's kind of cool. I can even imagine like, you know, like inside the, the dust jacket or something, just having like door after door after door, you know, or something as oh, using cool. it as a visual motif mm -hmm. in various places. I don't even know if we talked about that particular. Yeah. Idea, that's but. a great idea. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's going to be something we're going to be doing throughout. And then that, that, relates also because a lot of the custom stuff that we had put in some of the lobbies initially were interfaces to help you deal with the negotiation process and again i think there's a certain logic to that i don't necessarily think that doesn't make any sense but i also agree with what you were saying john that like it's it's a little weird to have all this customization in the default space and it's maybe just also confusing for the reader so simplifying it, I think, is a good idea. So we, we kind of decided on a big simplification, which is just no additional interfaces for dealing with the exec. The only interface we're going to show is talking. So I don't think it's necessarily true that it would be impossible in the world to build another interface, but we're just going to leave that completely out of our story. Well, I, I, 
I think there might be some exceptions to that later in the book where we might show like, well, there, I mean, I guess the scene could change, but there is a scene where uh, Tim is on a puzzle world called Pompeii mm-hmm. uh, that he's trying to solve. It's his second trial to get into the club Altaf. And uh, he, you know, he talks about like how like, you know, he can communicate with his toe or something to like tell the exec to eject him. So we, we might have literally have some nonverbal things, but I think most That's nonverbal, impo- but it's not like a built interface. Right. Like what we're cutting provides. is yeah. We yeah, had yeah, all yeah. these like weird, uh like custom made like, you know, terminals, you know, it was like, you know, every lobby was like this built out airport style space, you know, with all this infrastructure and it's like it's kinda confusing to see all that. I kinda like pulls us away from I think like the more core concept of what's cool about our universe, which is that you negotiate a contract before you enter. And so we're just going to put the focus on that. Right. Um, and that there's this, you know, godlike AI that you can talk to that can basically, you know, within reason, you give you anything you want. Right. 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 Um, and now we're getting into actual story stuff. So the beginning, we're going to be streamlining the beginning quite a bit. We felt like the beginning was a little bit uh, rocky, probably maybe the weakest part of the previous script. Yeah. As is often the case when you start out, you don't, totally know where you're going and you fumble a little bit and i think we realized that we were just like talking about a lot of stuff that never really comes back so we're gonna way cut down i think on arturo and and the the world of mechania which we might we're not going to completely eliminate arturo he'll still be in the first scene but he doesn't come back into the story after the awards and uh i'm just gonna remind people because like our trio played such a small role i'm not even sure if people remember right he was uh right he's he's, tim's partner yeah he's tim's partner in building the world that they you know tim tries to win the guy awards with um and he's like basically went to essentially a kind of art school with tim which is on the the mechania place you represented uh so i just want to make sure we covered like that like as a reminder really quickly but yeah all that stuff is pretty much gone now for the most yeah, or, or like reduced majorly and i think this is going to be a good change because we'll get to the trials faster which is really when the story starts we want to have a little bit of time to get to know tim and to show him uh in his element before that begins but not too much and we want to make sure that it feels directed and that he feels like an active character in that period of time so those are those are the kind of goals with this change and i think you know Cutting down the beginning is just usually a good idea, no matter what you've started with, right? This is like a generally a, a pretty fruitful strategy for, um, you know, editing a draft. We also like, I think, you know, had a long lot of conversations about Tim's character, mm-hmm. and we've always like agreed that you know he's someone who's has sort of a backstory of serial commitments to different things. He's like the kind of person that gets like really into something does it for a while and then very abruptly falls out of love with it and moves on to the next thing. Right. Um, and so like the current thing that he's obsessed with for the duration of this story is getting into Altoff. And we decided also that, you know, he's just on that train from page one. Right. I think before we were maybe trying to like split the difference where like, maybe he's like trying to make it as a, like a genuine like artist or something at the same time. And sort of his goals like are maybe in the process of morphing. I mean, that was definitely something we discussed, but I think like we're going to, you know, make him kind of a scheming person uh, right off the bat. And the voiceover is going to like give you that entry point. And also I think the voiceover is also one of the reasons at the beginning, I think is going to hopefully be much, much shorter this time around. 
Right, right. We'll be able to move a lot faster through it from those two changes. Um, yeah, so then the, the next really big change that we decided to do has like multiple knock-on effects. So it's kind of the biggest change we made, which is we decided that Zoya, who you got to remember, tricks Tim into giving her the answers to her first trials uh, in the in the original version of the script, we're deciding that she gets caught by the club in this a bit earlier, almost right away after she leaks the club's address. And that's going to have a bunch of knock on effects. It's going to change essentially her entire flashback structure because all of that was filling in the details. And so she's going to know, um, that uh, that Tim is being screwed around with by the club much earlier. Uh, but then there's also going to be this whole progression that we don't really have right now of her slowly realizing what she's being asked to do vis-a-vis Tim. Um, and so at first she thinks they're just kind of screwing with him. And then she realizes that, you know, it's not just a prank. It's they're luring him. And then she finally realizes that they're doing that with the intention of having her carry out the deed um, and she tries to leave, uh, and it, it, even eventually she's going to get her parents' endorsement to leave because they don't want her going to that, uh, Catalian And world. her parents are the ones initially putting it, like, th- that part doesn't change. Like, it's, it's still her parents very much that is, like, driving her to go through all this in the beginning, right? Right. That are, like, really pushing for it because they want access to the address of, of Altaf, right? So, like, but eventually, like even they stop pushing her to keep going uh, with what Altov wants because of what you were about to explain. Right. So uh, they, they are unwilling to let her, this is not a change either. They're unwilling to let her sign a a dangerous contract like the Catalian contract. Uh, And in fact, they've gone to great lengths to teach her never to do that. And that scene is going to more or less stay in the, in the story as it was written. Um, right, right. There's a there's an early scene with her where we see her being sort of taught as a child, sort of you know trained to be a, a tool for her parents' ambition. Where like that point in particular, never sign a bad contract is drilled into her head, and it was actually just a logic problem. I I believe in the last script that like her parents did just kind of like go along with her going to this Catalian naturalist world where she could. You know, I think die. you got around it by not having her specifically tell them. But yeah, it's like it, it's better if she tells them and they are against it. And then we have a plot sort of change that fixes that, which is uh, once they once she tells the club, like, I can't do this. You know, my parents won't let me. Um, they deploy their own kind of leverage. And we have a whole story that we've kind of worked out there that Altov can really screw with Imerologia if it wants to. They have a lot of really influential members, including potentially like a union leader who uh, is an important part of Immerologia's business model, and they can uh, pull rank on them. So we decided it was more dramatically interesting to have that actually happen. So we're going to have a piece of that that starts to happen that Altov can make a credible threat that they could cause serious, serious trouble for them. And that... uh, is one of the sort of motivating factors that's stacking Zoya up uh, to do what she ultimately does. Right. So she's really caught between these two powerful forces, which are like her parents on the one hand, who seem incredibly powerful until we realize that Altov is even more powerful. Right. Uh, And 
j- just to very quickly, there's a couple clunky things this is allowing us to get rid of that I'm like very happy to be be gone. Uh, which is like, you know, the the repeated beats of like Tim doing her homework quote-unquote for which is how I always used to like refer to it because it was like the easiest way to conceptualize it but I just it it was so awkward before where it was like you know she would have a trial and then she would just tell Tim to do it for her for like a fake trial and like we had that beat like twice in a row and so like that's all gone which I think is great um there is a sense in which I think she's kind of going through her own not necessarily like three trials but like hazing process Mm -hmm. you know and she also because she does get caught like leaking the name, like that's one of the reasons that like you know she gets lulled into like this series of like escalating pranks that are being played on Tim. Right. So it's less trials um, for her and more punishment. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I think you know she's definitely sort of in on the scheme without knowing exactly where it's going from the beginning. And I think you know what's going to be interesting navigating this whole like new Zoya plot line is just like you know, trying to humanize her because she's doing some pretty, you know, messed up things to to Tim, who's like kind of her, her peer somewhat, like, so, you know, a fellow artist who just, you know, kind of wants some of the, the same things that she wants. Yeah, um, well, not that we've made him like a great person, but I think, uh, yeah, she, she definitely is, um, we want to show her getting like, lured into this position rather than having her just be a psychopath yeah and the other thing that we're getting rid of is i think like we had some like moments where altoff like right from the get-go seemed a little bit lame like as she was getting into it and i just think like that's just not the right move anymore i mean we're gonna make altoff seem like maximally cool and mysterious and it's gonna be more like this process of slowly uncovering not that Altoff's not cool I mean it can be cool right to the end of the script you know in some senses but like that it's just right. got but this really dark inner yeah. core you know yeah and and you know her learning that um so I think that's like that summarizes like the Zoya changes pretty well I think um yeah I think that covers the biggest plot changes that we made but there is another big category of things changes that we made and uh, a lot of you will probably remember because we did talk about these, even though we skipped them uh, before. We had always planned to do some interstitial stories that, you know, come in at random times in the script and sort of cut away to some other part of the constellation where some other thing is happening. Uh, kind of similar in style to like the pirate stories and stuff like that in Watchmen, kind of just allowing us to to expand the world and. Uh, talk about some thematically relevant things. Or even more so than the pirate stories in Watchmen. Watchmen has those like long, like plain text. Oh yeah. Know, like they have like, uh, what, like newspaper excerpts and stuff like things that. Things like too. that. Yeah. Yeah. So, that are all sort of tangentially related to the main story or sometimes they fill in some backstory, but a lot of times they're more like almost just thematically related. They're not even directly related. So we were thinking about kind of doing sort of the same thing for the, I mean, not exactly, but sort of a similar type of thing for the for the constellation. Because we we want to make the world feel bigger. I mean, right? We've developed this like world, this constellation. You've heard us talk through all the like conversations to get there. It has all these like weird, you know, interesting like rules and and consequences to how things work and how it's different from the world we live in now. 
So we want to be able to explore more of that stuff. And I think just like, you know, put the main story into a larger context. It's just like, I don't know. I don't know. We want this to have that feeling of it's like it's it's a little bit bigger than the pages you're reading. Yeah, like it's not just a story. It's a world where many stories could take place. And this is just the one we're telling. Um, so yeah, so to that end, we have come up with seven interstitials and we've sort of figured out where they go in the story and what more or less the story is. We're going to be writing, uh, the first drafts of those while we do the second draft of everything else. And rather than give you all the details, what we were thinking of doing is just each of us taking one, uh, alternatingly and just kind of giving you the, the headline approach of what, what each one is going to cover. So, uh, do you want to start John or should I? Sure, I'll go. So uh, go the first it. one um, is going to be covering the transition, like the moment when the constellation started, right? When everyone was going about their business uh, in a world not unlike ours today, and then they went to sleep and they woke up and they were, you know, trapped in this weird simulation and they didn't know why, uh, and everything changed overnight. And so, you know, it's going to be uh, a s- sequence. I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty details, but it's basically going to show that transition happening to a character. So we're going to see them going about a little bit their normal life prior to the transition, then we're going to see the transition happen where they, like, wake up alone on the savanna, um, you know, slowly discover, you know, how to, like, reconnect with their their family and, like, you know, use the exec to do so. And it's not a character that we're going to see come back or that's related to any part of the story. It's just sort of, like, giving you what a typical person's experience of that was like. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the next one is the founding of Agoria. And so Agoria, you'll remember, is the world where uh, markets exist, a bazaar exists, and where money is basically is, is basically the money world of the constellation. So we talked a bit about what the founding of Agoria was, and we're 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 gonna present this in the form of like an interview. So there's a sort of reporter and they're talking to somebody involved, maybe the founder. And the basic story is that the founder has kind of by their own mistake created a crisis of faith in the, in the planet's like sureness. Right. So what we're seeing is a kind of PR stunt where the founder proves that Agoria is going to be around forever, and if you keep your money there, it's safe there. Kind of like uh, trying to prevent a bank run. Um, and so they do this um, this stunt where they basically delete their own ability to delete things, and they demonstrate that it's been done. Um, so that's the more or less the, the premise of what it is that... Uh, that the founding of Agoria will show. And we're going to show that, you know, using this reporter, but that's part of the story too, because the whole thing is itself a kind of um, stunt that, you know, has been organized to do, to do the thing that it's doing, which is to, to teach people that Agoria is here to stay. So the, the next interstitial we're calling planet of the ape singular uh, which makes sense because, like, one of the weirder rules in the constellation is that it wasn't just uh, human beings that were, you know, deposited on their alone on their own, you know, planet where they could do whatever they wanted. Uh, that also happened to all the living things, right? Because these aliens or whoever did this to us didn't discriminate so much, you know, between one life form and another. Um, but the 
thing that's like, you know, you know, that might be works better for human beings, right? Because human beings can talk and communicate and ask the exec to take them to another planet where they can meet up with other humans and form communities and all the things we see in the rest of the script. But if you're an ape, uh, you might be like just below the intelligence level to sort of figure that out on your own. So you're comfortable. I mean, you're not going to die. You're going to regenerate. Uh, you've got everything you need on this savanna but you're you're alone and apes are social creatures so this is like in a way this is kind of a screw-up on the part of the simulators um and so would apes be in the savanna i don't know if we talked about this well that's a good question like right in a jungle is yeah they maybe the habitat for them is is different i guess it would be so like they might be in some sort of like average habitat for them and that's an interesting point and we should write that in the uh outline before we finish this podcast uh why don't you do that while i'm talking yeah um so this story is going to revolve around sort of a jane goodall type character that is like i mean i'm not exactly jane goodall but someone who wants to like rescue these apes right wants to go into these ape planets because by default you know they're public anyone can show up in them you just can't get the ape off them because the ape is the only one that controls the exec on that planet so you have to, you know, teach the ape sign language or something to eventually get the ape to make the right gestures and, you know, to get their own exec to, you know, take them somewhere else. To Presumably, like, uh, the this main character is trying to get these apes to, like, an ape sanctuary where they can actually hang out with other apes and, like, be social. Um, and maybe, you know, humans can come observe them, like it's a zoo or something. Um so, yeah, I mean, we're just going to basically show the the process of, like, trying to persuade one particular ape to do that and to teach them what they need to know. It's going to go wrong, you know. At some point, maybe the ape realizes they can control the exec, but is, you know, asking the exec for uh, things that are not what uh, what they're trying to get. You know, the ape is conjuring stuff left and right. Um, so it, it it's going to be, like, I think a moment of, like, maybe some humor, like, in the middle of our script here, because this is, like, definitely, like, a lighter topic than most of these interstitials. Yeah, it also ties up, I think, an interesting sort of logical loose end of, like, what happened to the animals. Um, I, I love that one. And the, the next one is the origins of Emerologia, which is the planet that uh, Richard and Alexis Hall, Zoya's parents... Uh, founded and run and we've talked a lot about their backstory they're lawyers from uh earth prime and they uh they took advantage of the freedom given to them and built this big powerful uh world and so the specifics of it i'm not going to get too deep into but basically what we thought would be fun for this origin story is to show richard and alexis pulling off a kind of con so they're, they're going to have a rival of theirs and they're going to be trying to convince this rival to give up their uh, attempt at a rival world and join them instead. And ultimately they're going to um, succeed in really screwing this person and uh, sort of deleting their world out from under them or something like that. And the result is that Emerologia cements its place as the preeminent uh you know, tip dispensary in the uh, constellation. And we learn something about Richard and Alexis Hall, their ruthlessness and their ability to, you know, cleverly get what they want. 
Right. It's one of the, I mean, just to put a button on that, it's one of those stories where you see someone like taking out their competitor at a key moment, right? You've seen that in right. various stories, right? Like whether it's like a mob boss taking out their main competitor, or in this case, more Yeah, it's business. kind of a villain origin story. And to some extent, Richard and Alexis are villains in this world. They're kind of, they're powerful and they're pretty uh, selfish. I don't know if they're exactly evil, but they're kind of, yeah, selfish. Yeah, they're a bit, they're a bit villainous for sure. They're a bit villainous. Yeah. Uh, so next, uh, we're going to have a tale of defaultism. Defaultism is our our favorite religion that we came up with, uh, which is we're thinking pretty widespread enough that it like has different sects, different variations on it. Some people are more orthodox. Some people are you know more reformist. And defaultism is an idea is that uh, you know. However, the simulators set things up as the defaults. That's how they wanted things to be, and that's how more or less uh, we should have them stay. Uh, the defaults are basically, you know, a sign of what God wants, so we should follow those defaults. Um, and so that means, like, a few things. It means, you know, you would live on a world that probably resembles the original savanna that most of us were on. Um, people are spawned into the constellation initially without clothes, so the defaultists are naked most of the time. Uh, defaultists, like, you know, they don't turn uh, death on, right? So they're all immortal. They leave regeneration on as well and pain very low. I mean, those are probably popular settings anyways, but one of the places they maybe run afoul of, like, what's popular is that uh, one of the stranger constellation defaults is that uh, birth control defaults to on, so nobody can have kids initially. Now, you can just ask the exec to change that for you, and then you can have kids quite easily within limits. Um, but uh, if you're a defaultist, yeah, you're not going to... That's a pretty big red line, right? Like, that's a pretty strong indication that, like, the simulators didn't want us to have kids, so we're not going to flip that switch and so without getting into all the details it's going to be focused on one particular defaultist couple that have a slight theological disagreement that also turns into like a deeper disagreement about you know whether they should turn their back on this one aspect of their faith and have a kid anyways even though they're not supposed to and then it drama unfolds from from there yeah um and then the next one is maybe one of the weirdest ones, which is, we're calling it Hacking the Constellation. And it's a story of Tim's past, but it's not really starring Tim. It sort of, it sort of features him. He's important in it. But it's really about a couple of other people, too, and about something that we've talked a lot about on the podcast, but haven't um, really gotten in the script yet at all, which is that some people, once you realize you're in the constellation, some people would dedicate a lot of their life to using scientific type methods to try to break the thing or figure out ways to kind of get out of it or um, get out to, to communicate with the simulators or something like that. And so we're imagining there's a hacking leader who has some claim to fame and they have in the past done some, found some glitch or figured out some way um, to, to sort of uh, use the constellation that's surprising um, and that, that that's kind of made them famous. And now they have a collective that's doing more organized work to sort of, you know, learn about uh, how the constellation works they run experiments and things like that. And we're imagining that there will be, uh, the story that we'll tell is almost like a story of sabotage and espionage. 
It's um, in the lab, in this uh, lab that this hacking leader has created. And Tim is one of the workers there. And the exposition about Tim is that basically, like John was saying, he's a serial uh, commitment kind of character. And this is a place that he has been committed to for some period of time. And he's about to lose interest. And that's sort of the moment that we are uh, checking in with him. So he's disgruntled with the work. He's starting to feel like this isn't going to go anywhere. It's a kind of a pointless task to try to break our way out of this box. We can't really do it. And uh, at the moment that he's feeling that he gets approached by this sort of outside agent who has infiltrated the lab and they oppose what the hacker's doing because they're afraid that if it succeeds, it's going to get us all shut down and basically everyone's going to die. So they try to convince Tim to, you know, sabotage an upcoming experiment. And Tim doesn't want to do it. He basically, he's like, you know what? I don't care who wins in this fight. I don't really have a dog in it. I don't want to be involved in either side. And he kind of like just walks away at that point from the whole world. And then we're going to just uh, have one more beat at the end of the story, which is that the the experiment goes through and it's a terrible disaster in a way that could only be the result of sabotage. And we have like a sort of little uh, twist ending where a character that you ignored up at the beginning, who is Tim's coworker, you know, turns out to be the one who carried out the, the uh, actions of the saboteur. So uh, that's a, a sort of strange story that we'll use as a vehicle to talk a little bit about the strange limitations that the uh, constellation has in the way that people are trying to work around them. Uh, all right. So the very last interstitial, and there's a reason this is, we decided to make this the last one is about James Applewhite. James Applewhite is the, he is definitely a villain character. Yes. He's um, very villainous who has, um, well, I mean, basically this is, this is how he, I mean, we, we we have seen him already because he is the person when Tim is trying to find a novel world that no one else knows about to submit to Altoff for the sort of fake trial process he's being put through. He runs into James Applewhite through like putting out a personals ad basically and discovers that James Applewhite has created this sort of cultish world where he is the sole like god and leader of it and he's got all these people there and their children that he has trapped there because a long time ago he conned them into basically signing bad contracts when they didn't really understand how things worked in the constellation so he's basically done you know one of the worst things you could probably do in our universe yeah um by sort of trapping and i mean if not like not like exactly torturing people but kind of um so we're we're going to see basically how he did that, right? Like we're going to, it's in a way this is going to, I think maybe be the mirror image of the very first interstitial, which is showing an ordinary person going through the transition, right? Because we're going to see another sort of ordinary person who goes through the transition and, but is like basically becomes a mark for James Applewhite, right? James Applewhite is going to pop into the world and talk to this person who maybe hasn't even figured out how the exec works, doesn't really comprehend like why they're in a savanna still, you know, when just, you know, in their mind, you know, they were just going about their business in a normal world 
not that long ago. Although maybe some time has passed. Maybe that person has been sort of aimless for a couple years now when Applewhite shows up. And Applewhite basically makes his pitch like, I have the answers. Like, I know how this works. Come with me to this world. Say yes to this contract. And basically, the person only has to agree and make that mistake once. And they're basically stuck there forever. Or, you know, until Applewhite allows them to leave. And the implication being that Applewhite has basically populated his entire cult world with people that he similarly conned to this person. Um, so it's kind of just a, a straight horror story, right? It's like, I mean, there's no like real twist here. I mean, you're just basically seeing how awful Applewhite is and like one of the main ways the constellation can go really, really wrong for some people. Um, but the reason that we decided to put it near the end is that, you know, the, our final beat in our script is Zoya actually freeing all the people from Apple White's world that have been trapped there forever. And so we wanted to, you know, we felt like this is a good place to remind the audience of how terrible that is and how terrible Apple White is right before Zoya does this, you know, somewhat redeeming act as sort of like the final uh, moment of the book. You know, we've seen Zoya kill Tim and probably go along with too much from her parents in Altoff and be not necessarily a great person for most of the book, but we, we sort of give her this last moment to do something very, very good. Yeah. And that's another place where the voiceover is going to allow us to know how she thinks about what she's doing. And I think that'll help with that too. So those are the interstitials. And I think we were able to get through those pretty well. And uh, so we'll be doing those uh, in the next version. And that's going to basically be the next draft. And then we'll sort of see where we are. Um, But I wanted to talk about one other thing before we wrap today which is we got a letter recently from one of our listeners and he had an interesting question for us, which was basically to talk a little bit about some of the recent developments in AI. I think he was hoping we would actually like do an old style review of the future episode, which we don't really have unfortunately the bandwidth to do right now. But I wanted to just have a little bit of an online discussion with you about this because you and I have talked a little bit about this while we were doing this work. Which is like, since we started working on this project, as I'm sure all our listeners are well aware, there's been a kind of explosion of interest in uh, AI more generally, machine learning based technologies more generally, but very specifically, uh, natural language machine learning, you know, large language models like ChatGPT and uh, other ones that you can talk to with text. You can write to them in a normal human voice and they will write back to you. They can write things for you. They'll interact with you in a written way. And that's something that is like really interesting for us as people who are writing a science fiction thing where a major part of the world is that there's a pervasive um, natural language understanding uh, computational intelligence that's available to everyone all the time. Um And there's also been a lot of interest in, you know, generative AI that makes stuff like uh, pictures uh, for you from text prompts, right? Like uh, stable diffusion, mid journey, that sort of thing. And I think there's a certain analogy to be made there between that and what the exec does for the world builders in our story when they say, you know, make me a tree 
uh, and it makes a generic tree. And then they say, okay, make me a tree, but make it, you know, a spruce tree and this is many years old and from this region of the world. And then it can do that. That is not that different from like how you get stable diffusion or something like that to spit out images. Um, so I think this whole kind of, um, burgeoning field of prompt engineering, which is like, you know, coming up with good phrases to put into the AI to generate writing or pictures or whatever, um, is not that different from the skill that we're saying that Tim has really the sort of world engineering skill that he has built and, and Zoya has as well. And I think that's, uh, that's, that's very interesting. That's interesting in the sense of like, I think it's going to be good for the book and make it easier for readers to understand because they'll have had some experience with it. But I also think, um, you know, it makes this idea that we were thinking of as a very far-fetched science fiction idea uh, seem less science fictional and more just like how the world was. Yeah, and that's how I would frame it is, right? Like we wrote our last book, Let Go, trying to be you know, a little bit ahead of the curve, you know, like be looking like into the near future and like writing about stuff that would be like just before like people would be thinking about it. And it seemed like, you know, by the time we came out with that book, you know, a lot of, I mean, I think our that book is still relevant today for sure. Like, but I don't think it's like been made obsolete or anything. But like by the time we came out with it, you know, things like Black Mirror and stuff had come out that it like, address some of the similar topics in a, in a somewhat similar way. Mm -hmm. And so like, it felt like, you know, in some ways, like, you know, not just present technology caught up because in some ways that actually quite hasn't happened. Right. Like there's some things in let go that like, you know, like self-driving cars that we're still waiting for. Um, but it does feel like the cultural zeitgeist somewhat like caught up to us. And like the book wasn't like, didn't feel as like futury when it came out as like I think we thought it would, and so like in pivoting to this like new constellation story, like you know I was definitely excited about like let's make something that's just like totally just out there crazy, like is not going to be like any relationship to the real future because like that's going to be um, you know just like a fun sort of playground to to play in where we can like invent these strange rules and put our characters and drama through that like strange like you know thing that we've crafted that has no you know relation to anything and that's totally not what has happened because what the hell like reality <laughs> has like caught up to our book anyways and it really does feel like yeah this notion that like you could you know stand in a void and give instructions to an AI to like just make everything that you want as you say it. And it interprets that in like a pretty good way, like based upon having scanned the entire universe, um, but you know, needs to be tweaked and that actually there's a skill to like giving it the right instructions at the right time. I mean, that just sounds like right now, exactly. And like that was, you know, so I'm a little bummed about it because I think that was like one of the like things from page one we were going to do that was going to feel, I think, weird and futury is that, you know, Tim says some words and like something, you know, the whole world around him changes. Now, I mean, we're still like, it's still heightened in our book, right? Because like you can say like, you know, make gravity go up and then gravity goes up, right? And that's not like quite the the kind of world we live in yet. But um, I think that uh, yeah, in some ways, it's like the beginning of the book is just going to feel very familiar. 
<laughs> to people. Yeah, well, we're just going to have to lean into that, I think, uh, and try to find a way to make it relevant to people now while still having the the fun speculative aspects in a way it, it makes it far, more re- it makes our book trends. more relevant which is not bad right like relevancy is fine it's not what we were aiming for uh exactly right. no we were almost but, trying to like shoot past relevance just to like get to the actual fun what if stuff but you know it's hard to imagine things that are that far in the future and you know the the capabilities caught up to us so the uh, that's where we're at <laughs> yeah yeah and so i mean yeah the yeah, and and this is a space where it's like, you know, I mean, probably, like, I should have seen this coming. I mean, it definitely, like, you know, we it's all stuff that we talked about when we were doing Review of the Future. It was like, you know, like, all the things that you could do in sort of the, the media-making space, what they now call, like, generative stuff, right? right? Generative AI, right? Because all of that stuff is just, like, ones and zeros already that you're arranging, right? The stakes are low. It's not like, you know, self-driving cars where like the stakes are very high, you know, and or and everything has to be perfect or someone dies, right? Like it's it makes a lot of sense that this is where we're seeing like a lot of crazy advancement right now because it's just sort of like it's it's the perfect space to like throw this like this machine learning at, you know, and get like actually interesting results. And now of course like so much investment is going into it that, you know, by the time we finish this book i guess we'll see what the world looks like because i'm not even sure i want to place any bets on that um yeah and i think it's going to be really a big question and uh you know as we go through the process of making this book um i think it's even possible that some of these technologies will start to become useful to us in our process but as of right now we're still planning to kind of do the book the more or less traditional like it's completely it's increasingly like not crazy sounding that like even though ted and i are not like great great artists that like maybe we could like you know prompt engineer a way to like some kind of version of the book um i mean like i don't think like the technology is up to par now and i'd much rather work with an artist for like a myriad reasons but um you know i mean that's I mean, it, it, I, I, I mean, mean, it's no question to me after playing around with some of these systems a bit that it is possible now to do that. I don't know that it would meet the quality standard that I'd want to meet. And I'm not sure that the time would be best spent doing that. But I, it definitely would be possible if we uh, had no other way of making the images for this book to, to generate them using existing available technology. Um, it does it does raise some interesting like questions about like you know how like i mean i think some of the hype around like you know replacing artists is i think totally overblown because it's just sort of like a different way of making art right it's a different modality right so instead of like take putting putting pen to paper and granularly choosing where every line goes like you have to talk to this like AI that then interprets what you're saying, like you have this middleman. So, I mean, it's not clear to me that like using the middleman is going to be the better way to go. But as far as like allowing more kinds of people with more kinds of like inherent talents to produce like quality stuff, um, it's definitely going to expand the pool there. And like in that it way, it's also like, increase yeah. the ability of people to make low quality stuff. <laughs> 
And I think we're well, yes. seeing yes, we're a seeing tremendous that, yeah. explosion of that, um, which, it, you know, obviously it's easier to make low-quality stuff than high-quality stuff, so no surprise that the AI finds that easy as well. Um, but I think most of the elements that people are looking for in high-quality, like, literate narrative uh, art, uh, like the kind of thing we're trying to make here... Um, are, are, are don't actually play to the strengths of the AI because uh, they're more about um, finding unique, um, original approaches and gimmicks uh, and less about, um, you know, providing the sort of likely thing. And I think the, the, the AIs are very powerful and they're very cool and they do a lot. And uh, I, I, I've, been playing around with them and and finding use cases for them left and right um but i think they are the way that they're designed they kind of they give you the most statistically likely answer for any particular prompt or question and i think there's a um there's an inherent uh, conservativeness to that that doesn't serve uh certain kinds of art um I think uh, some kinds of genres of art that actually won't be a problem. But, well, in theory, you uh, can just tell it to do something not conservative and it could do it. Uh, and that does work to some extent. You can tell it like be more creative, actually, like for chat GPT, an example, uh, you yeah. can like tell it like write me that again, but be more creative. And it does have an effect, but it doesn't quite get it to the point where uh, I'm using it to, for example, like uh, write any lines of dialogue for me or anything like that. I haven't, I haven't managed to get it to, to do that yet. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, now that the initial like shock of just how good some of this stuff has gotten has worn off, like, yeah, my feeling is that like most of the stuff is pretty bad, both the writing and the art that I, you know, I mean, not like you can't do good stuff, but again, you do good stuff through kind of, you know, a lot of effort. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a different kind of effort. Yeah. But yeah, so, you end up putting a lot of time in, I think, to get But I mean, it's not going to stay that way. Like, I mean, what Agreed. we're, we're, what we're going to find out, you know, in the next five years and it'll be super interesting is like, if you keep scaling it up, you know, w what does it look like, right? Is it actually, you know, learning like real things about the world from just like scanning the internet? Um, I mean, there might be, there's not everything's on the internet, so it's going to have gaps, right? And they'll have to get other kinds of data to fill those gaps. I mean, for like for robotics, like it's harder to get good data, for example, it seems like, but, mm -hmm. or anything real world. We'll have to see. And like, that's kind of scary <laughs> to think about. Yeah, I don't know. They're, they're very interesting uh, class of, of technologies. And I look forward to seeing what more they can do as we uh, optimize hardware for them and optimize data collection for them and optimize them themselves and uh, continue to uh, improve them, which I think is going to happen, like you said, because of all the all, all the money. money's all pouring the, into it. I mean, people I mean, that I know who are tech workers are are jumping into that field from wherever, whatever right. thing they used to do. So if like the answer is you just make these things bigger and bigger and they just gain new skills as they get bigger, then the world's going to get real weird real fast. If we hit like, you know, any kind of bottlenecks in that process, then then maybe things will stall out. So, I mean, that this is the thing that I just don't, I have no idea. Right. <laughs> but Right. I mean, uh, at the very least, they're going to be really useful and they're going to be, you know, having effects in the job market. I don't know if the effects are going to be 
straightforwardly people lose work, but already like, you know, these things can do a lot of, um, a lot of stuff that it used to take a person to do, uh, you know, online chat help and stuff like that can be powered by this, uh, you know, things like that, uh, uh, call centers can be powered by it, um, well, it's funny, like, yeah. when we first started, like, blogging, like, the, the precursor to Review the Future, which was our blog, like, we Decline were Decline of Scarcity in, was the name. Yeah. We were interested in this question of, like, you know, is technology going to automate away jobs? And, like, over time, I mean, I basically decided the answer was no. Like, I mean, I've pretty much come around to the mainstream economist opinion on this until... I guess it's sort of like Robin Hanson's opinion that I have, like, which is that, like, yeah, it's not really going to replace the jobs until it's actually as like human level. And then it kind of replaces all of them <laughs> instantly. Like it's kind of like, that's, you know, more of the model I have in my head. And like what happens between now and then is basically just employers trying to use it to exploit their workers as much as possible, which is like already what the like labor fights in the entertainment industry that you're on the front lines of are like, featuring is that discussion yeah. about um i don't know if you want to speak to that at all but i mean i think that's what like the near future looks like is these disputes between capital and labor that aren't about like will jobs exist so much as they're about like you know <laughs> oh I, I mean i think they absolutely are about will jobs exist i mean it's particularly the sag position the screen actors guild right the extras job work is a little more cut and dry but like it's not clear to me that like yeah. that's lessening the sum total of jobs in the economy in a way that like, I, I agree like that that's subtractive. not as clear, but um, yeah, I mean like th if they don't get their way on AI, if the actors don't get their way on AI, acting won't be a profession <laughs> anymore. Like those people will still act. Acting will still be a thing people do, but it won't be a job. Uh, it'll be, you know, a hobby, <laughs> um, a vanity project at the absolute best because, uh, they'll be able to scan you for whatever, a hundred bucks and then reuse your likeness forever. So if you become famous, uh, they can just load you up and put you in movies you didn't sign up for and pay you nothing. And, uh, that'll just be legal. So obviously that's not a problem with technology. That's a problem with greedy companies trying to use a technological change moment to take advantage of workers and roll back obvious common sense existing sorts of protections, right? But that's the kind of thing I expect to see everywhere. That's the kind of thing that whatever you're in as an industry person listening, like that's what I'd be looking out for is how is your employer going to use this to screw you? I think the other thing it's going exactly. to exactly that's that's my point. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and I mean on the because they can screw you long before they can like you know totally automate you away, right? Like there's there, the first one has to happen first. Yeah, well, and and here's the sort of trajectory that I see, uh, and I think us us in the in the arts industry are kind of on the front lines of this, which is, you know, first it's first it's superstar effects. First, the people who use the technology become more powerful, they can do more work, they get more done, they get more hits, they get more money, they are incentivized to do even more work, um, they, the technology gets more and more powerful, and that that process just comp you know feeds itself, and so you have people doing the job 
but you have maybe a smaller total number of people doing the job, you know, individually making more money and doing more productivity. And then uh, as time goes on, then yeah, you, you start to see this next thing, which is like the deprofessionalization thing, which is like the, the bosses realize they can use the technology and they don't need this artist middleman anymore. So they try to, that's like the gigifying thing. Is the, gigifying. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So they're like, that's okay, the other way to so say like, that Uber yeah. still needs drivers to drive cars. That's the analogy, right? Uber like would love it if cars could drive themselves, but right now they can't really. So in San Francisco, they kind of are, but like, you know, most places they don't. So, uh, they still pay a bunch of drivers to drive cars, right? But they want to treat you as, you know, atomized as possible so that they can drop you the instant the technology allows them to, right? They basically want to, like, reclassify what you do as something, like, adjacent to it that, mm-hmm. like, basically dodges whatever rules were in place previously right. that might have benefited workers at all, right? Well, like right. it's basically And they'll yeah. use the technology to bridge the gap or to cover their tracks. They'll, you know, they'll use the technology. Maybe maybe they're using the technology in like a real way where the technology is now doing a significant part of your previous job. Or maybe they use it in a kind of BS way, like kind of how Uber uses the fact that they have a an algorithm that organizes, you know, taxi drivers and taxi ride wanters um, to to say that because they have that, they're not, you know, they're not subject to taxi regulations or something. Just because, you know, in the old days, the taxi had to drive around looking for a fare. Um, and that's sort of silly, I think, on some level. But, you know, it's it's become it's become, uh, you know, the courts accepted it. So it is what it is. Um, and I think, yeah, that's, that's like sort of the next thing is that they turn you into gig workers. And then I think the final thing is the Robin Hanson, you know, they have emulated brains or they have AGI or they have something that's pretty close to one of those two things, maybe not a hundred percent there. And it's enough to do most cognitive work. And then at that point, um, working for money, doing cognitive work for money, just stopped being. Well, at that point, that, the bosses are basically obsolete too. Exactly, or they're on their way to being. Well, and, right, and something that several people because an emulated boss can you know manage. Oh yeah, much everything's much better. And well, and, and several people have already pointed out that even now, like ChatGPT would probably be a better boss than worker for most jobs because mostly what it can do is organize things and manage things. Um, so. I think, yes, obviously, like, the bosses are just as vulnerable, uh, at least the middle management type bosses. I mean, somebody's got to sit at the top of the pile of money and and, and count their profits, I suppose. But, um, yeah, I think it, it goes for the managerial class as well at that point and, and, you know, basically kind of knocks everybody out all at once. And if that's what happens, then it won't be a catastrophe, right? Because if everybody loses their job, you know, within one year or something... Uh, will will change society the 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 thing i worry about is 25 percent of people losing their jobs to technology and everybody else still having a job and thinking those people are lazy and, 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 you and know. I, I i have a hard time with that i mean it's like you know that again that's what we sort of like set out to like initially talk about and i just i don't find that 25 percent scenario like as plausible as i used to like i have a hard time seeing like how we how we actually get like even the things that we're talking about and the crazy technology we're seeing i have a hard time seeing how it actually makes like 
the total jobs meaningfully less and doesn't just like make workers conditions worse really <laughs> instead right right um, well I, yeah i mean it'll be interesting to see what happens with self-driving vehicles as they do you know i mean i guess online. those things are related right? right i mean if you make workers conditions conditions bad enough then they will just not work anymore and it's like they don't have a job but i mean well and we're seeing some of that now too right with all yeah. this sort of anti-work yeah. movement so yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a number of different ways that this could go. I don't know that I have a handle on how it will go. I'll be watching closely with the self-driving cars and self-driving trucks to see if in the next decade or two decades do, you know. Yeah, that was supposed to be like do the those big like near-term apocalypse, right? Was the self was the driving. Well, but there's, that there's hasn't just still happened. so many people who make a living driving and they there are self-driving cars driving around the streets of San Francisco. I just saw a uh a news article about like, I guess a bunch of them stopped somewhere due to like a network error and it's a big, you know, everybody's upset about it. Uh, so it's like, yeah, this is like a thing that's coming still. It just hasn't quite fully taken off the way we expected it to by now. And I still, yeah, think we're maybe in that part of the hype cycle where it actually shows up just like after you've forgotten it was coming, right? right? Like it's yeah. like all the hype has died. Everyone's like, oh, the thing is done. And then now is when it finally shows up. Right. I think that is right? exactly what happens. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I mean, it could take another 10 years before they work the last bits of it out that like it really becomes something that competes with truck drivers in a serious way or truck drivers become you know, logistics managers and are not actually driving the vehicle, but are doing a kind of, you know, other jobs, but on board the vehicle. Um, and we'll have to see how that goes. And I don't know whether there will be, you know, if that goes in the way that is worst possible situation for workers, we could have a lot of out of work former drivers who don't have a lot of prospects elsewhere you know, maybe that wouldn't be 25% of our economy, but it'd be significant. That's the other thing about the labor impacts, though, right? Is that, like, you know, it's one thing for the technology to be existing, and it's another thing to, like, incorporate it into your company infrastructure, like, fully. Sure. Right? Like, that can take years and years. Yeah. And, and in addition to all that friction, there's also literally the friction of the people that, you know, don't want to be don't want to lose their jobs and like it's not always legally easy to fire huge masses of people all at once so yeah and if those or, people or, have a union then they can actually fight and make rules and yeah protect their and jobs we're in a bit of a, a pro labor moment right now so, i don't who knows that may be crushed soon and who knows how long that this current like uh vibe lasts but well, if i was in one um, of those positions right now and i didn't have a union i'd be looking to unionize because i think you want to have that kind of power when you get up against uh for sure for sure know. and there's more to that happening but yeah so it's not it's not clear that like even if you know perfect self-driving technology exists that it's going to be easy for like some trucking company to you know implement that up and down their supply chain like quickly um for all these reasons no I, i'm sure it will take 10, 15 years from the day it is commercially viable to produce to like when it has taken over and in a best case scenario, I'm just saying that like that may still not be enough time potentially. Like even if it takes that 10 to 15 years to, you know, to turn over those workers and, and find other um, 
things for them to do that will be remunerative and valuable. Um, and so, you know, it, or it may be, I, 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 I'm, I've never been, I've never had a conviction that this would definitely happen. I think when, when we first started doing this and I had my strongest conviction about it, it was like, this is a, maybe a 20% chance or 10% chance, but it's bad enough that it, a 10% chance of it makes me think it, we should talk about it and have some ideas in our head of what we would do if this started happening. Right. And I think as of, as of this moment, I have not seen it happening. As of this moment, I'd say all these automation advances seem to be creating as many new categories of human endeavor as they are destroying. And while there are winners and losers, the net effect is not catastrophic so far. Um, but I, I don't think we're necessarily out of the woods yet either. <laughs> No, no. I mean, look. I mean, you know, it's yeah, it's future <laughs> predictions. So, I mean, nobody knows anything really. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's those are those are my current feelings and your current feelings. So, yeah. I mean, no. I mean, mini- I think we both adjusted yeah. our priors like toward probably not a work apocalypse in the future. But uh, how do you feel about this? Is a little bit off topic. What? Uh, but how do you feel about uh, Curtis Wild these days? Because we ended the podcast that's uh, right we sort of reviewed on a little stuff. bit of a down note on Kurzweil saying like yeah I got some stuff right it's pretty impressive what he did but also like we don't see him on track anymore and do you still feel that way because I think in some ways not just like the two things one the recent AI advances have been quite impressive uh, you know, and, and even though like there's still many Kurzweil predictions you can point to that have not come true, like I think the AI stuff is in some parts of it are on schedule. Mm-hmm. And uh, but also like I feel like, you know, he wrote those books about how the brain works is like theories of AI. And I feel like if you go back and look at that stuff, it's pretty spot on, like his vision of how this stuff would work and how like sort of just scaling things up and using, you know, some of these like you know, neural networks and like things that had been around for a while mm-hmm. with just like bigger hardware. Mm-hmm. Um, and that prediction was like a fundamental part of technology, right? Do you remember that? Like that was also, this, that was also the Jeff Hawkins argument, mm-hmm. right? Was that, like, or, or not a fundamental part of uh, the brain, sorry, a fundamental part of thinking. Of intelligence, is like, right, right. A fundamental part of intelligence is like right. constantly like basically making predictions about what the next thing is. And like, that's essentially how, these LOMs work, right? And that's the current best sort of like neuroscience understanding of the brain as far as I know as well, right? Is something they're calling predictive processing, which is like exactly that. You're making predictions and then your nervous system sort of like moves your limbs to make them true and stuff like that. I also think he was kind of like on the, on the train of like, you know, this stuff will emerge from like language understanding, like that natural language processing is kind of like the gateway into this stuff. Yeah. That's something you've been expecting. Yep. I, I'm pretty sure he was like basically arguing things similar to that. So I think in some ways, like I'm a little bit more bullish on him than I was when we wrapped the podcast. If- yeah. So, I mean, I definitely think the recent seemingly rapid advances of um, generative AI have looked good for Kurzweil. I think Kurzweil, uh, you know, what, he's usually pretty good about the, hardware capabilities he's usually less accurate when it comes to cultural stuff but that's you know just squishier and harder to do um i i think you know in general we found that a lot of his 
stuff seemed to be roughly 10 years behind, but not necessarily wrong. Like, uh, you know, like he was saying things were going to come in 2009 that had actually come by 2019, but were not there in 2009. And then he had all these predictions for 2029 that, uh, uh, or rather for 2019, that that felt like they wouldn't maybe make it until 2029. And I think only a few of those have sort of like filled in in the, in the intervening years. Um, but I mean, you could summarize some of it like as he had his three... I forget what he called them, right? Like his the three, three like tracks. revolutions or whatever, like uh, right, sure, three revol. That's probably like, what it was, right? Uh, like nanotech and genetics and it's like nanotech, biotech, AI, right? right? And basically, you know, we really haven't seen the nanotech or the biotech like that. I think we were promised well, by I think him seen, and other people. We've seen what like the mRNA thing is pretty cool, right? Yeah, like, the, I mean, I mean, we had this. Seen, pandemic One which forced some thing. some investment in like biotech which act, i mean big surprise you put a lot of money into something you see more progress there so like that was you know uh, uh, that was definitely something cool that happened recently sure but i think like for yeah, him and the nanotech to really is basically dead outside of uh outside of microprocessors that's the only place there's any kind of nanoscale technology really uh, to speak of uh which is being used to make chips faster but they're not they're not doing nano machines that can go inside your blood or anything like that yet and i think he even sequenced them in the book where he was like biotech he covered first then he covered nanotech then he covered ai and not necessarily quite like implying i think he was always saying like they happen simultaneously but he was sort of sort of feed on implying each other. that they would like bloom in that order and that's not the case at all like i think to the extent that like if his predictions are to be saved at this point for his any of his like timelines or even to be close what's going to happen is that the ai stuff is going to drive the biotech and the nanotech advancement and i i would buy that as a possible near-term future that like you know when you apply these large language models to those fields of like biotech and nanotech like what comes out of them right can these things actually do like really speed up research or not right right right. there's been been some promising early results there right with like uh some of the machine learning being able to figure out protein folding and stuff like that so there's a few there's a few early attempts at getting machine learning to push research forward quicker and i think over time we'll see more of that and hopefully that will lead to a genuine revolution in biotech that's not just, you know, slightly better uh, genetic uh, editing technology or something, but like really, you know. Um, and then the the nanotech thing, obviously, uh, there's a lot of work going into that and has been for a long time. So hopefully um, we'll eventually figure out how to do that stuff. But that does seem like it would take a real miracle of of AI capability or something to to get us there on his schedule at this point. Yeah, I I mean um, I and that may know, not my... actually end up turning out to be totally possible. I mean, I think there's a speculative aspect to those like nano machines and stuff. We may not be able to really do that. We don't know. Well, I mean, my understanding of this is like crude, but the, I mean the the Drexler stuff is like, here's what's like in principle is impossible. Like given the laws of physics is really like the, the angle that that takes. Right? Yeah. Which well, is like and I, a I long mean, way from like biological systems operate at those scales. So it is possible for things to operate at those. Right. Scales. We have examples of but, like nano machines that 
all, like, you know, you know a, blood cells all, and things all like around that. Us, yeah. Or like basically, you know, but and viruses and you know those are basically and like, like blood machines. cells there's no reason that those are the most efficient blood cells that could exist right you can show like that like you know there's there's room to become more efficient without violating any fundamental laws of physics right right, right. like that's basically like the the nanotech like argument as i understand it but it's like a different thing to actually be able to build but to be actually things. be able to yeah. right like manufacture them and control them that's like uh you know speculative at this point it's possible but but we don't we don't have that working. So, um, yeah, I, I, look, I think that Kurzweil has a, you know, he had a political sort of goal of trying to produce interest in the future. I think sometimes he overstates as a result. But I think, yeah, I think on on the whole, the thing that he's been most right about has been AI, basically, you know, the development of computer intelligence. And that really is the, you know, the thing that's getting a lot of attention right now. And, and we're seeing a lot of major advancements in. So we'll see if that keeps up or if it's another cycle or what. We don't we don't know yet. Well, so two two things that I'm watching for. Mm-hmm. The big one is like a basic research advancement of some kind that you can credit, you know, mostly to an AI. I mean, that's a sign sure. that like, you know, the singularity actually is near. And a smaller one I'll throw in for fun, since you brought up the uh, the SAG, uh, SAG after strike, which is like, uh, yeah, when when is there a movie that people actually want to see that, like, no actors uh, were present for the filming of? Right, well, yeah. <laughs> and that'll be, that'll be an interesting benchmark to hit, right? Like, sure. it has to be something that people, like, isn't just like, oh, this is a cool gimmick, is like, this is like, this is a, what people would choose to watch. Right, right. Like a culturally relevant piece of media of some kind that's completely generated. Yeah, that'll be a big milestone for sure. Well, all right. This is episode 50. We have now covered the the first script and the plan for going moving forward. We're going to do this writing. I don't think it's going to make sense to like record us doing the writing since that's going to be mostly, you know, silent work. So we're going to be back here to to, to let you guys know when we have a new plan, basically. So leave us in your feed and don't uh, delete us out of it, but don't expect new episodes right away. Uh, and we will we'll have an announcement at some point when we figure out what the next thing we're going to do is. But we are going to keep working on this and we'll hopefully get it out into the world, you know, sometime before AI makes it irrelevant. Ugh. That's, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, uh, this has been the uh, Constellation Podcast, and thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. This has been Constellation, Making the Graphic Novel. Our theme song is Pomona by Audios. To subscribe to this podcast, look us up on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher application. You can find us on Twitter or on the web at constellationpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.